And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome back once more to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. As always, I am your illustrious host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and I'm glad you decided to join us today here on the show. I uh, hope everyone enjoyed our last show where I talked about a trio of classic Game Boy Godzilla video games. Uh, always fun to take the King of the Monsters on the road with you, or if you're more like me, just playing it whenever you get a few free minutes, uh, because the Game Boy is about the only video gaming that I have at this point in my life. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, good show coming up today. We're going to be talking about IDW's Godzilla The Half-Century War miniseries, a very cool miniseries, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. But before we get into that, we've got a few items of uh, Daikaiju news that we need to get into here. There, as I am recording this, this week we have not one, but two rather significant events in Daikaiju coming up. A couple of days from when I'm recording this, on July the 10th, the new Ultraman debuts. Uh, Ultraman Ginga is going to be part of the new Ultraman Retsuden uh, series in Japan. Ultraman Retsuden is a uh, series that takes a look at the history of the Ultra series and is presented sort of in a uh, almost documentarian sort of fashion, although it's hosted by Ultraman Zero, so take that as you will. I'd watch more documentaries, uh, I think, if they were hosted by Ultraman Zero. But Ultraman Ginga is the newest Ultra hero, and uh, he's debuting in a couple of days. And this is an interesting looking series because it deals with uh, something called the Spark Dolls, which are small, soft vinyl toys, and is very similar to what we saw in the 35th anniversary Super Sentai show, which was uh, Pirate Sentai Gokaiger. Uh, the heroes of the this show are going to be able to transform into different Ultra heroes and Ultra monsters from the uh, past uh, years of the Ultra series. So this all looks like a lot of fun. I'm really hoping one of the fan sub outfits is going to pick this up. Um, you know, there's a few about TV Nihon and Overtime, Grown Ups in Spandex. There's a few of them out there. I haven't seen any indication, but you know, back in the 90s, I used to watch. Tokusatsu shows raw Japanese. I will gladly do that again for Ultraman Ginga, uh, which is just in a couple of days. And then, a few days after that, the biggest Daikaiju event of the year, no doubt, is the release of Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, which comes out in wide release on Friday, July 12th. Now, I have plans to go see the film uh, the Saturday, on the 13th, uh, with a bunch of my friends. We're making a Day of Daikaiju, and, <laughs> uh, and that's going to be a lot of fun. we got some games playing. We're play some Monsterpocalypse, we're going to watch some movies, we're going to go see Pacific Rim, so definitely interested in that. The other thing, you can't get enough Pacific Rim, uh, Legendary, in association oddly with Marvel, which is very strange because uh, Warner's is releasing Pacific Rim, which is, you know, uh, who owns DC, but this was released through Marvel, released a hardcover comic called uh, Pacific Rim Tales from Year Zero, which uh, is sort of a prologue to the film. I read this last weekend, it is really worth tracking down some really nice art it's it's broken into several sections so there's a couple different artists working on it the screenwriter has wrote the uh 
wrote the comic. I don't have it in front of me. I wish should have grabbed it, but in any event, definitely worth checking out. And uh, the other thing is that uh, the NECA, the first wave of the NECA toys, which are about eight inches tall, from what I understand, have been spotted at Toys R Us stores uh, pretty much across the country. I haven't had a chance to check the Toys R Us here in the upstate of South Carolina, uh, but I'm tend to do that. I'm going to be right over there in the next couple of days, so I'll definitely be checking that out. The first wave has uh, two mechs, or Jaegers, excuse me, has two Jaegers and one of the Kaiju. It's got Gypsy Danger, Crimson Typhoon, and the Kaiju Knifehead. So check those out at a Toys R Us near you. And remember that NECA is also bringing out some uh, giant Machinder style, 18 inch tall uh, Jaegers down the line, which should be a lot of fun if you've got the space for it. I do not, but that would be pretty cool. Now, uh, news items out of the way, let's get right into it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with IDW's Godzilla The Half Century War. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our topic this time out is IDW Comics uh, miniseries Godzilla The Half-Century War. Now this continues the trend of IDW releasing miniseries while they have their ongoing series going on in the uh, same time frame. These miniseries have uh, so far been pretty good. On on this show we've covered Gangsters and Goliaths and Godzilla Legends. This is the third one. And this one's a little bit different in that uh, all of the story and art is done by one person, in this case James Stokoe. So let's get right into it. Godzilla, The Half-Century War, number one. Story and art, as I said, by James Stokoe. Color assist by Heather Breckel. Editor, Bobby Kernow. Japan, 1954. Lieutenant Oda Murakawe rides atop his Sherman tank through the panic-ridden streets of Tokyo. He and his team don't know what to expect, but they sure as heck did not expect this, as a giant lizard smashes through a city block. Oda and his men open fire, but do little more than irritate the giant beast. The monster turns on the tank platoon and lets loose with a torrent of white-hot energy from his mouth, eradicating the entire unit except Oda and his driver Kentaro. Blasted aside, Oda radios into HQ and discovers that they have to delay the beast long enough to cover the civilian evacuation of the North Shingawa district. Moving to intercept the beast, Oda and Kentaro harass him with tank fire, but end up barely escaping with their lives, dodging first another beam, 
and then a skyscraper which the monster topples towards them. Though in rough shape, Oda and Kentaro secure the evacuation, and the beast, named Godzilla, moves out of the city. Though seemingly killed in Tokyo Harbor by a secret super weapon, Godzilla reappears. Oda and Kentaro are the first approach by Colonel Schuler of the U.S. Army to be part of the AMF, the Anti-Megalosaurus Force, an elite team tasked with ridding the world of Godzilla. Oda swears that the next time he crosses paths with the King of Monster, he will have a much bigger gun with him. And things get started off really right out of the gate here on, on this uh, with this issue. Right on the cover, uh, the cover is by Stoko, and it depicts Godzilla standing amidst the rubble of Tokyo with, uh, we see the back of Oda uh, in the foreground here, and there is just a mountain of detail in all of the uh, rubble on this uh, on this cover this will we'll see this kind of become stoko's trademark throughout the series is the an insane amount of detail in his backgrounds and and his monsters and then we compare this to his people which are definitely manga style uh, i would say this book looks exactly like a manga in that the uh, human characters are often kind of over expressive and a little overdrawn to show their emotions but everything else is depicted in a very detail heavy realistic manner uh, some of the manga I've read um, falls into this. A, a good example is the very popular racing manga Initial D. In Initial D, the characters are very simplistic and expressive, but all of the cars and the backgrounds are very detail-heavy. And, and Stoko does a great job with this. Also of note is that Godzilla, despite this being 1954, is a modern style with his big Millennium-style spikes and white eyes like uh, GMK, but also a callback to the uh, original film. The inside front cover, um, which has the credits, shows Tokyo Tower with uh, some chunks taken out of it. I really like anytime, you know, it's one of those things that you have to destroy the landmarks when you go to certain cities, and Tokyo Tower, of course, is that for Tokyo. And uh, it's a really nice uh, image of Tokyo Tower, though standing triumphant, it it's looks a lot worse for wear. Uh, page two, we meet Oda, who will be our hero throughout our series, and his sidekick, uh, Kentaro. And uh, Oda is, um, he, he's a character that's going to grow a lot over the course of this series. Here we meet him, he's hes a tank commander, he says he was out looking for adventure, uh, which is, you know, not a, we think about that, I think, a lot in terms of Western uh, literature and western comics uh, you know somebody joining the army looking for adventure and blowing stuff up but not so much from a uh, an eastern perspective so that was an interesting touch the sherman tank is very neat because it actually looks kind of like the tank from metal slug if you've ever played that game which makes sense as metal slug has a sort of uh, uh you know manga almost uh, approach to some of the uh, some of its graphic design so i thought that was nice uh, page four and five is a two-page splash of Godzilla with some inset panels of him smashing through a city block. And Goji's roar is very interesting. It's extremely stylized. It looks almost like a, I don't know, like a cloud. But if you look at it, you can see the letters making up the uh, the roar, the sound effect for the roar. And Godzilla himself just looks fantastic. I mean, every scale is picked out, every tooth the folds of his tongue, every um, you know line in his spines, everything just looks amazing. And then underneath his feet, we've got you know cars and rubble from buildings and a train and power lines, and it it just looks fantastic. The amount of detail in this is simply amazing. 
uh, pages 6 and 7, this is where Godzilla attacks uh, Oda for the first time. The beam is very nicely realized here because first we do get a panel of the uh, the energy charging in the uh, in his spines which is always a nice touch but then the beam itself is just pure force uh it's it's you know it's it's not shown as fire but it's just shown as like a concussive force almost it's got a a great sound effect which is krakoom uh, there's great sound effects all throughout this um, and we also get another example here of Stoko's um, manga-style art on page 6 when um, Oda yells, Open fire! His eyes are giant circles with tiny dots. His mouth is agape. He definitely looks like something you would expect out of a more traditional manga comic. Uh, page 8, panel 3. Uh, great shot here showing the aftermath of Goji's attack on the tank unit as we have a tank that's been completely melted. And this is a direct reference to the original Godzilla film where we see Goji melting tanks with his atomic breath during his uh, siege of Tokyo. And we'll see that again throughout the series that there are specific references to the era which, which uh, they're talking about. In this case, obviously, this is the 1950s. So this mostly references the original Godzilla. Uh, page 11, panel 3, as uh, Oda and um, Kentaro draw Godzilla away from the uh, evacuating citizens, is a great panel here showing them driving between his legs and then flanking in front of him. And you see multiple points of fire all shown on the same panel, three shots, one into Goji's right thigh, one into his right shoulder, one into his left shoulder as they cross in front of him. And it's just neat that... Um, you know, to show, I, I like stuff like that. That's something that always reminds me of, like, Carmine Infantino's work on The Flash, where we'd see The Flash doing several things uh, happening very quickly in one panel. And this one has the added benefit, again, of Stokoe's attention to detail. Uh, there are, you know, hundreds of people picked out. They're tiny on the page, but you can see all these people running away. Again, more rubble and debris. Uh, there's, you know, a tent, there's signs on the marquees, on the stores and billboards. And, you know, it really just looks fantastic. And the sense of scale that we get from seeing Godzilla amongst this setting with the Sherman tank and all the vehicles and the people, really fantastic. It really shows, uh, you know, a good understanding of perspective. Page 13, panel 1, with one swipe of his tail, Godzilla levels a skyscraper and sends it hurtling towards Oda and Kentaro. This is a great series of panels here. But this first panel... I mean, just showing the uh, the explosive force of Godzilla's tail whip right through this building. I really loved it. That That's just a great shot. And interestingly, the logo on the uh, building, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be selling, but it's a squid with a Band-Aid on its head. So I'm not guessing a sushi uh, company, perhaps, or a fishery. I'm not sure on that one. Page 14, panel 3. Again, another shot uh, showing Godzilla's scale and his uh, size uh, compared to our human heroes as Godzilla chases after them and, and again just barrels through a series of buildings on the corner of a block. And we see that he takes up a good two-thirds of the page and the Sherman tank in the foreground is maybe half an inch tall. So it really shows the size difference and it really, again, the detail is amazing on this. And as these buildings are exploding from the impact of Godzilla hitting them, and we're seeing each brick as it's flying out and each pane of glass. And on the ground, we still see cars being flipped by Godzilla's feet and power lines being pulled down. This book is, I mean, even if the story wasn't great, this, this book would be a beauty to behold. But we're lucky in that the story is a lot of fun, too. 
Uh, page 16 and 17, another splash page with some inset uh, panels. My notes for this is the money shot, as we finally get a full-on profile of Godzilla, seeing all of his... Uh, all of his power in one shot here. We see all his spines running down his back and up his tail. He's just roaring defiantly as Oda stands, uh, or actually is, is falling on his knees on his side, and uh, Kentaro is stuck inside the Sherman tank. Just, you know, this is... I think if you wanted to show a proof of concept of this series to somebody, to show them this splash page, I think they'd understand it. Uh, page 22, uh, we get a heck of a cliffhanger as uh, Oda says that this is where my half-century obsession with Godzilla would really start. And he promises that he'd have next much bigger guns. We get a real, It's a nice uh, kind of abstract panel with Godzilla in the background. And then in the mid-ground, we've got Oda standing on top of his tank amidst the uh, rubble of Tokyo. And then in the foreground is Oda after he's been recruited for the AMF. Really nice way to end it. And again, a good uh, cliffhanger to say, hey, come on back next time because there's going to be more and bigger guns. I really enjoyed this issue because it immediately grabs us and it puts us as the reader right into the thick of the carnage of Godzilla attacking Tokyo. Uh, the art is simply amazingly detailed. As I've said, Godzilla is depicted as a complete force of nature. Nothing that they throw at him is going to stop him. Uh, they make the point that it mostly just irritates him more than anything else. And rep you know, as a comic book representation of the Daikaiju films of the 1950s, I think this is a, a really uh, spot-on uh, um, you know, approach to it. And it's, again, just a great debut from a, um, for Stoko for this issue and got the series going on a really high note. All right, Godzilla, The Half-Century War number 2. Again, story and art by James Stoko, color assist Heather Breckel, and editor Bobby Kernow. Vietnam, 1967. In his 13 years in the AMF, Oda has come to know Godzilla's habits and patterns. So it's very strange for the monster to head for unfamiliar territory, first Taiwan, then through coastal China, and into war-torn Vietnam. Moving with a purpose never before witnessed, the AMF prepares to deploy a new weapon in South Vietnam, the Mazer Battery. Developed by the eccentric and giant drill-obsessed Doc Randall, the Mazer is thought to be finally the weapon tough enough to pierce Godzilla's outer hide. But the Mazer mission is interrupted by the blowhard U.S. Army General Carson, who wants to use mass firepower to kill the King of Monsters. Carson makes his move, but it predictably fails, letting Doc Randall and Kentaro open fire with the Mazers, which work. But the operation is prematurely ended when an underground nest of Viet Cong flee from the scene, followed shortly by the Earth itself moving and the arrival of the monster Angurus. From his chopper, Oda observes the new arrival with disbelief, and the two titans instinctually attack each other. The brutal clash ends after Angurus is laid low by Godzilla in an American bombing raid, but the mysteries deepen as Colonel Schuler discovers a strange device hidden in a downed aircraft in the area. Oh boy, things really take a step up here. Uh, again, the, the cover is is, a, is really nice. We see Godzilla um, amidst the jungles of Vietnam, and uh, there's a pair of uh, fighter jets swooping in right in front of him, and we see the uh, the army and the civilians fleeing in front of him. Really a nice, uh, nice picture. The uh, inside front cover depicts uh, Oda wearing his uh, his army gear, where um, it's a, he's wearing a leather jacket that's got a patch on the back that's got a stylized Godzilla. It says, it says don't tread on me, and tread is crossed out and replaced with step. I thought that was pretty neat. Uh, page two and three, some very creative panel layouts. 
Uh, we've got a big panel with Godzilla that runs across both pages at the very bottom half of the two-page spread with some helicopters chasing after him. And then we've got panels with Oda in his helicopter uh, above, and Oda gives the background of uh, Godzilla traveling through Southeast Asia and out of his normal stomping grounds. I really like this uh, very creative layout. I like the fact also that Godzilla's spines from the bottom panel poke up into the uh, panels and above. So I, I, I always like when you play with the frame like that. I like it in film and I like it in comics as well. Page 5, panel 7, we are introduced to Doc Randall. He looks like a character from a Showa Super Robot anime. He's got big glasses, a big uh, poofy mustache, he's sweating uncontrollably. Uh, he, he looks great. He looks like if E.C. Seeger did, did manga. Uh, and, and Randall is a very funny character because he is obsessed with drills. And they show some of his inventions. All of them have giant drills on the front of them. And, uh, and he's talking about his Mazer being this uh, new armor-piercing technology, and he laments that it would have been better if they had put a drill on it as well, just in case. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why um, Japanese pop culture is obsessed with drill tanks, but you know who's to complain because drill tanks are awesome. Everybody loves drill tanks. Um, Randall is a, is a great a great like one-off character here he, I, and I love that he's sweating in every panel he's in you can tell he's very uncomfortable here in the in the jungle page seven panel one uh, we get to see uh, a different version of Oda's uh, vest from the inside front cover this one says monster masher on the bag I like both of them I think either of them would be a nice uh, a nice thing to wear to like a, a uh, you know a g-fest or something like that I don't know if anybody get it but it's still pretty neat Page 8 and 9 is a uh, two-page sequence of the U.S. Army attacking Godzilla in a valley. And what's interesting is that this sequence is completely wordless. As first, Godzilla is uh, engaged by uh, gunship choppers and uh, tanks, and then... Um, fighter bombers swoop in after him and drop uh, ordnance on him and Godzilla is completely unfazed I mean he basically turns to look at who's attacking him but is in no way hurt or even seemingly bothered by it then he lets loose with the beam and just creates a, a swath of destruction throughout everything in his path a really a nice sequence and again good use of storytelling by Stoko because there's no words here so everything is conveyed through the art as it you know a mark of a good comic book artist is that you can tell the story without any dialogue or any captions and Stoko does that here he does this several times throughout the series this was really nice uh, page 10 the mazers are deployed and panel 5 uh, we get Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Mazer shots all at once, and they act, they hit Godzilla, and he is in pain. We see almost an explosion of energy right off of the back of his neck and his uh, shoulder as, uh, as they open fire with him. The sound effect is a simple vish, and uh, wow. And then we see on panel, the next panel after that, one of them is actually drilling right into Godzilla's eye, and he does not look happy. This is the first time in uh, one and a half uh, issues into this series that we've seen Godzilla even remotely in pain, let alone kind of, uh, you know, really getting hurt here. So, of course, it all comes to an end very quickly as um, the next panel, uh, the Earth, or the, excuse me, the next page, the Earth starts to shake beneath uh, Doc Randall and Kentaro. And page 11, panel 5, we see a single uh, or a pair of giant spines sticking up out of the Earth. And I think we all can guess who it's going to be. And on pages 12 and 13, we get a two-page splash revealing Angurus. 
Now, this, of course, makes sense that Anguirus would, of course, be the uh, the first foe that Godzilla fights, since Anguirus is the first foe Godzilla fights. But it also makes sense in the sense of this being uh, set in 1967, thus referencing the Showa films of the 60s, which typically had Godzilla fighting another uh, opponent. And so it's, it's kind of a double uh, homage there, because Angie, of course, uh, harkens back to the 50s, but the idea of Godzilla fighting another monster became really solidified in the 60s. So, and I guess you couldn't use King Kong, so you kind of had to use Anguirus here. Uh, Anguirus is definitely in his Final Wars style. His shell is much more rounded, um, and his snout is a little bit shorter, and, and that's okay with me. The Final Wars style Anguirus didn't deviate too much from the Showa Anguirus, and I think it looked a little more powerful, so I like this design quite a bit. Uh, pages 14 through 18 is the brawl, and that is the only way to describe it, between Godzilla and Anguirus. It is back and forth. Angie lays right into Godzilla, leaping at him and chomping down on his hand. Uh, again, another uh, reference to um, Godzilla raids again right there. Godzilla won't have anything of it and just uh, you know, hammer fists uh, Anguirus in the jaw, trying to make him let go, but he doesn't work, and Anguirus takes him down to the ground. Finally, Godzilla is able to uh, throw him off and uh, hits him with a beam blast, but Anguirus comes right back and does his move from Godzilla versus Gigan, jumping backwards with his uh, spikes right into Godzilla's chest. And he does this move again, and before Godzilla finally has had enough, and he catches him with a tail whip and sends him crashing right into a um, into a hill. And then that's when the uh, American bombing run comes through and just absolutely lays waste to uh, to and the whole scene, including Anguirus. Great fight. I mean, you know, the first issue we had just, you know, again, like a, a 50s-style Showa film, a monster on the loose. But here we see Stoko really in his element with an extremely dynamic, super detailed fight between these two behemoths. And, uh, I mean, really, these guys look just fantastic laying into each other here. This is just an amazing sequence. And finally, on page 22, we get to see the device uh, that Colonel Schuler finds more detail. Um, you know, just every little line and circuit uh, demonstrated here. There's a pile of cables on the bottom of it. It really looks kind of... Uh, I don't know. It looks it looks a little uh, a little deviant with all the cables, like it's supposed to be something alien, but it's clearly something uh, 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 terrestrial. Uh, but again, another good cliffhanger because Colonel Schuer says it looks like we've got a bigger problem than I thought. And so, what is this device that has these strange, uh, you know, uh, uh, satellite antennas on top of it and all these wires and everything else? So, again, uh, this issue action heavy. A unique setting, seeing Godzilla and Anguirus in uh, Vietnam. And of course, as I said, Anguirus is the first opponent. Just a great, visceral, tooth-and-claw, Showa-style fight. Stoko really brings this clash to life. It's it's wonderfully rendered. And, and we get an intriguing cliffhanger here, because what is this going to mean... What does this device mean in the grand scheme of things? And and it really plays a big role going forward. So another really good issue. The, at this point, uh, I think anyone who's reading this is going to probably buy the rest of the series. So they've got you hooked. Another great, I said, just a great issue. So let's move on. All right, Godzilla, The Half-Century War, number three. Again, story and art by James Stokoe. Color assist, Heather Breckel. Editor, once again, Bobby Kernow. Ghana, 1975. Since the events in Vietnam, the world has changed. No longer was Godzilla alone, and in the wake of Anguirus, a veritable legion of monsters made themselves known. 
Rodan, Batra, Megalon, Kamunga, Mothra, Ibra, and Hedra all appeared all over the world. And the AMF is pushed to the limit, with a two-person team assigned to each monster, including Oda and Kentaro, still working on Godzilla. But the AMF was not above corruption. One of their own, an R&D specialist named Deverick, developed a device which was supposed to repel the monsters, but he disappeared and made his repeller instead into an attractor, able to lure monsters wherever it was broadcasting from. And now, all of the monsters have marched into Ghana in West Africa. The AMF and Oda could do little but watch the devastation. But they're not totally helpless, as Colonel Schuler sparks one building amongst the rubble still with power, a radio station. The crew loads up into a tricked-out VW bus, no, really, tricked out VW bus, and makes for the city. Ibra attacks the AMF. Rodan swoops in, but is driven off by Mothra. Godzilla nearly steps on the bus carelessly. Rodan then nearly crashes into the vehicle, and they have to dodge the tussle between Komanga and Megalon. The worst scene is behind them, when Hedra pops up in front of them, but the AMF drives right through the walking pile of muck. Infiltrating the radio station, the AMF easily bests the guards and discovers Deverick, broadcasting his attractor while running an auction, selling his psionic transmitters to the highest bidders. The AMF moves in, but Deverick throws the switch to chaos, and the monsters go on a rampage back on the streets, attacking the station. Schuler is caught in the rubble, and though Oda tries, he cannot get his CO free before Godzilla tramples the radio station to the ground. With Deverick escaped and Colonel Schuler dead, the AMF lies defeated, broken, and humbled. Ooh, things really hit the fan in this issue, and uh, the cover is uh, a wonderful depiction of Godzilla fighting Hedra in the streets of Ghana. And again, we've got tons of people uh, fleeing for their lives between these two monsters. Hedra's a monster, I think, that works better in comics than he does on celluloid, just because the idea of a monster made up of uh, muck and garbage and pollution... I think it's easier to portray the shifting, unbalanced nature of that on paper than it is on film. And, and he looks really good here. I, he's got himself wrapped around Godzilla, which is very nice. Pages 2 and 3 shows a uh, two-page spread of all of our Earth monsters. Uh, Ibra is an interesting choice here. You usually don't see Ibra, uh, but I like Ibra, and uh, it's good to see a true Earth monster. And Hedra is normally considered to be a space monster, so it's interesting that he's included here. I'm not really sure why that is. Batra is the other one that's a little odd, who's not a uh, not in any way represented in the Showa era. But part of that has to do with the monsters that they are allowed to have in this series. Uh, IDW only had license to certain monsters for the majority of the their time publishing the characters, although that really now has changed, and we'll see that um, in the series that's going to come after the ongoing Godzilla series by Dwayne Swierzynski, they get some access to more characters. But in this case, it's great. It's a nice mix of some flying monsters and some walking monsters and some crustaceans and, of course, Hedra. So. Oda has had it rough. He looks a lot worse for wear. His uniform is torn up. He's got a bandage wrapped around his right eye, and he just doesn't look very pleased with himself. He, well, the years have taken their toll on him, clearly. Page 5, panel 1, we get to see uh, another one of Oda's uh, uh, uniform shirts. He's wearing a, a t-shirt underneath his jacket that says, The Beast Must Die. I just thought that was a nice touch after the... Uh, the last issue with the vest that we saw him wearing in Vietnam. Uh, 
Page 5, panel 2, the villain is revealed as Dr. Deverek, a cocky American SOB scientist who invented this attractor. And uh, he looks like a cocky SOB. He's got long blonde hair that's swept back. He's wearing squared-off horn rim glasses, smoking a cigarette. It's like, you just want to punch this guy in the face as soon as you see him. And when you find out you know, kind of the damage and chaos he causes, you, you really do want to punch him in the face, so it's kind of perfect. Uh, pages six and seven, another creatively laid out two-page splash, as the bottom uh, third or bottom quarter of the page uh, depicts all of the monsters in silhouette rampaging through Ghana, whereas the top three quarters shows a series of six panels, long, tall panels, showing uh, the team assigned to each monster. We never get to really know these characters, but I like that Stoko took the time to come up with characters that were fighting, you know, Megalon, Mothra, Rodan, Ibera, Hedra, and Batra. They were just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just little character bits. Like in the Hedra panel, we get to see uh, the guys are wearing hazmat suits, and one of them we don't even get to see his face. We just see his suit with his breathing regulator on behind him. Uh, the Mothra crew, we get to know a little bit because they drive the van, and they're a pair of hippies. And, uh, you know, got the, the, the black guy with the big afro and the uh, and mustache, and then the white guy with the, the big goatee and messed up hair and a headband. Just a really, uh, really neat-looking crew. Rodan's crew looks like a pair of fighter pilots, because obviously they'll be handling something uh, in the air to take on uh, the flying monster Rodan. So really nicely designed. And a lot of character here in these two pages, even though it's not expounded upon, it really helps sell the universe, I think. Page 10, panel 3 and 4, Ibra gets a chance to shine as they set off in the Mothra team's van. And this van is, i got to say, it's hilarious. It's painted up with stylized Mothra wings, and it says AMF on the top. It, it looks hilarious. But anyway, as they start making out, Ibra makes himself known, and they narrowly avoid getting crushed by his large claw. And, you know, Ibra's a monster gets dumped on a lot because, you know, he's Larry the Lobster, as we used to call him. But, you know, he's just as worthy a monster as any of the others. And the thing about Ibra is that if Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster had been made as Operation Robinson Crusoe starring not Godzilla but King Kong, like it was intended, I think Ibra would be held in higher regard because he's a much better foe for somebody like Kong than he is for Godzilla. But I was very glad to see him get a little spotlight here. Pages 12 and 13, another absolutely amazing two-page splash. In a series that has had nothing but amazing two-page splashes, this one may be the best one. As we see Godzilla firing a beam at the bus while, um, Rod while Rodan is crashed into a building, Mothra is swooping after dropping Rodan, and Megalon and Kumunga are tangling with each other. The amount of chaos on display and the amount of rubble and carnage and wreckage, destroyed buildings, toppled uh, cars, smoke, fire, the everything here comes together. This is just wonderful. I absolutely love this page. And man, Stoko does such a great job with these. He nails it out of the park every single time. And then on page 14, we get to see Hedra. Uh, he pops up with a with just right in front of the van as they're driving up a big ramp. And uh, they they drive right through and out of them, and it's hilarious. The, uh, the sound effect is splorch. And they're playing on the radio, break on through to the other side. So the door is always good when you're fighting giant monsters in Africa. Uh, page 17, panel 4. We get to see uh, Colonel Schaefer brains the guard outside of Deverick's hideout inside the radio station with a great sound effect of crack. 
and it looks like his head explodes when he crack when he brains this guy with the uh, he pistol whips him with his uh, his officer's pistol. Uh, but just just great dynamicism. And again, very manga like. And the guards here are very manga like. One of them is a uh, bald guy with giant ears, and he's very sweaty. And his partner's got a uh, you know stubbly uh, face and a very pointy nose. So very stylized characters in this extremely highly detailed environment. Overall, again, this issue really plays on the twist of introducing Deverick uh, and a human uh, element to the story, which has so far been primarily about monsters. And then, even, and then we keep the monsters going because we introduce even more monsters, which keeps in line again with the show of films of the 70s that typically were not just one-on-one -on -one clashes, but always had more monsters in them. In fact, there's only one film released in the 70s that only had two monsters in it, and that was Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. All the rest had three or more. And so the idea of the big monster mash was really popular in the 70s and is wonderfully represented here uh, in in this issue again some, the artwork continues to be astounding stoko's nailing it out of park and oh the, the transformation that oda is going under from the young tank commander to the uh you know the guy in vietnam was full of ideas and enthusiasm to the the guy who's starting to get a little little uh long in the tooth and a little grizzled now and it's really just uh, an, an interesting transformation that he's going under while everything else uh, the world seems to be changing. The only thing that stays the same is the monsters. So another good issue right here. Godzilla The Half-Century War number 4 with the exact same creative team, story and art by James Stokoe, color assist Heather Breckel, editor, once more Bobby Kernow. Bombay 1987 Oda, no longer a young man, finds himself questioning his place in the world. After 30 plus years of chasing Godzilla, what has it all meant? No family, no friends outside of the AMF, nothing even remotely passing for a life. And the AMF itself has changed too, new departments funded, giving rise to the mechanical weapon called Mechagodzilla, deployed to intercept Godzilla in India, which Oda wishes he was piloting. As Oda and Kentaro watch the battle, Oda steps outside to have a smoke, and spots Dr. Deverich. Giving chase on foot, he tracks the rogue to a train station where Deverich is meeting with a client who has paid him to have his attractor turned on in Bombay. Oda eyes the machine, which has gotten more complex over the years. Oda finally gets his hands on Deverich and slugs him, leaving him for the AMF to arrest. But there are bigger problems in Deverich, as his device has drawn a monster to India, not from elsewhere on the planet, but from outer space. Space Godzilla crashes into the middle of the fray between Godzilla and Mechagodzilla and is met with stiff resistance. The MG is smashed with Space Godzilla's crystal torpedoes, knocking it offline. Godzilla steps up, but finds himself tossed about with telekinesis. Oda makes his way to the fallen MG and climbs aboard, managing to get the big machine back online long enough to fire a barrage at the space monster, which in turn gives Godzilla the chance to blast it with a point-blank range shot of atomic breath. The space monster defeated, Deverick captured, and Godzilla left standing, Oda can't help but think of he and the King of Monsters as de facto allies. But in space, even worse trouble seems to be brewing. Uh, yeah! Uh, we're moving into the Hesai era here, and those are set in 87. This is sort of an homage to the entire Hesai era. The cover depicts the uh, gigantic crystalline form of Space Godzilla crashing into uh, the Taj Mahal as Godzilla looks on in the foreground. Uh, majority of the cover is this, is clouds and smoke from the impact of the uh, Space Godzilla's crystal. And it really just looks fantastic. I always love the crystalline elements of Space Godzilla. It's one of my favorite parts of the character. And it really 
really looks great here. The inside front cover is a shot uh, of Earth from outer space showing the crystal falling to Earth. Obviously this takes place before the cover, and my first thought upon looking bad is, uh-oh, <laughs> that can't be good. Pages 2 and 3 uh, shows Godzilla stomping through Bombay, uh, just laying into a uh, palace of some kind with his, uh, with his atomic breath as uh, the civilians flee on the street. And we see the AMF van with their stylized Godzilla logo just sitting. It's not the VW from last time, but they're sitting there in the street as everyone streams past them. Uh, just layers of detail in the splash. In the foreground, we get, like I said, all the, um, the civilians running away. And then in the midground, we get some really well-detailed buildings. I mean, you can see every tile um, on the sides of these buildings. And then the background is Godzilla, who Stoko always draws, just with fantastic levels of detail. Really nice opening page here. And again, good to see Godzilla in another unique environment for him. You know, we've never seen Godzilla in India. So again, one of the strengths of the comic book medium allows us to... Uh, you know, to, to see him in places we normally wouldn't. Page 5, the debut of Mechagodzilla, and this is actually the Hesai Super Mechagodzilla with the Garuda backpack uh, guns attached over his shoulders. You know, makes sense for the era, again, because it would be the Hesai era that this is uh, an homage to, that we'd bring out the Hesai Mechagodzilla. Personally, of the three Mechagodzillas, the Hesai one is my least favorite, but I know he has a lot of fans out there. Very clean-looking robot design, you know, very sleek. Uh, I always thought it was interesting that compared to the Showa Mechagodzilla, which is very angular in a lot of ways they made this one more rounded i guess almost a, you know kind of the sign of the times versus the 70s versus the 90s for what machines looked like as well page eight we get to see the mechagodzilla deploy his hip rockets against godzilla kind of at uh, close range he fires them into godzilla's shoulders now this was only really noteworthy to me because in a lot of different pieces of literature including but not limited to the trendmaster's Mechagodzilla toy card, uh, God, Mechagodzilla is depicted as having rockets that fire out of his hips. They're always mentioned, it seems like, or very frequently mentioned, but very rarely used. So I thought it was a nice touch that we got to see him uh, use his uh, rockets here against the King of Monsters. Uh, page 12, panel 2, um, as the Space Godzilla descends out of the sky, we get to see the massive scale of his crystalline form. We see a, a rain of crystals falling down into the city, and each one of them is about the height of Godzilla and Mechagodzilla, and then the main crystalline uh, form easily dwarfs them, being at least four or five times their size combined, and just great scale for the space monster. You know, we, we've been really earthbound here, even though we had Hedra, who traditionally is a space monster, this is our first real space monster in this series, and to show the the you know, the sheer difference between them, I thought that was a great uh, job by this uh, this panel right here. Uh, page 13, panel 1, that giant crystalline form finally impacts, and it looks like an atomic bomb going off, and that has to be a pro on purpose. I mean, it just looks amazing. Uh, they see the crystals crashing in, the buildings just utterly collapsing or just being blown apart. The smaller crystals have already impacted and are sticking out, looking a lot like um, uh, it's Fukushima, I think, where... Uh, 
the finale of Godzilla versus Space Godzilla takes place and the crystals have taken over the city. And then on panel three on this page, we get to see Space Godzilla's face for the first time as he roars in profile. And his eyes are all red as opposed to Godzilla's all white eyes. A very nice touch. Space Godzilla always looks nice. Whether you like the film or not, I've always thought he had a great look and he continues to look great in pretty much every IGW comic that he appears in. Uh, page 14, we get a uh, panel that takes up about 75% of the page, where we see Space Godzilla in all his blue and red and crystalline glory, just letting out a roar as he just casually swipes his tail aside and smashes a couple of buildings. I thought that was a nice touch as well. Like Godzilla, every nook and cranny, every scale, every facet of the crystal is drawn. Just a great piece. One of the, you know, if you could just take this panel as a pinup, it would make a great poster for Space Godzilla. Page 15 through 17, the battle is on. Uh, the first thing we get to see that's of uh, that I liked a lot was uh, Space Godzilla's Corona Beam. Uh, the Corona Beam is always neat because it twists and turns around. It's not just a straight beam. And it absolutely wipes out uh, the Mechagodzilla. And then he breaks out the uh, telekinesis to throw the, um, the crystals like... Uh, torpedoes. And that was a neat touch. And, you know, you really think about it, Space Godzilla is very overpowered in a lot of ways. The TK is part of it, for sure. Then the, uh, you know, he sends them towards Godzilla. Godzilla attacks with his uh, atomic beam, and Space Godzilla produces a crystalline shield, another nice touch. And again, uh, nodding back to his power set from his one appearance in the Hesai era. Then, of course, uh, when Godzilla moves in for the attack, Mechagodzilla simply picks him up with telekinesis and flings him around. You know, again, very simple. You know, uh, part of it is that we see Godzilla getting thrown around by an opponent. We know that he's going to come back and, and, you know, mop the floor with him. But we see the, you know, the odds that he's up against. He's not just tangling with somebody that's tooth and claw like Anguirus was in issue two. This guy is, uh, you know, far beyond what the Earth monsters had in terms of power set. Page 20, panel 4. The Mechagodzilla is still prone, but he fires all of his weapons. I always love scenes where the Mechagodzilla just lays out with his entire arsenal, whether we're in the Showa era, the Hesai era, or the Millennium films. It's just just a great uh, sort of callback to um, you know like a, like a Mecha anime or something like that, where we'd see him just lay out. And here he just looks fantastic, letting loose with his eye beams, his uh, atomic buster, and the shoulder cannons all at once. Just really looks great. And then on the next page, page 21, panel 4, with the crystals destroyed, the space Godzilla is more prone. Godzilla hops up and gets him right in the face. This is what my friends and I call killed in the face right here with a point-blank range of atomic path. Just, I mean, just you can't even see. All you can see of Space Godzilla is his legs, his arm, and his crystal on his shoulder. You, the rest of it is just covered in an explosion of energy. It's a great shot to show the defeat of the space monster here. Page 22, a very, you know, kind of uh, ominous ending. Oda feels pretty good about himself having piloted the MG and helped Godzilla defeat Space Godzilla. And he makes a comment that there were three Godzillas in uh, India that day, but we all know who the r real one was. But then, the last panel we see in front of uh, Jupiter, the silhouettes of Gigan and King Ghidorah. 
So I wonder who's going to be showing up in the last issue. Very ominous indeed. Uh, this issue was, is, was kind of a change of pace because it starts out very maudlin and then becomes very action heavy towards the second half. Two Hesai stars are both put to really good use with Mechagodzilla and Space Godzilla. And Space, Go Space Godzilla is fantastically showcased. Again, I'm probably more prone because I'm a fan, but man, does he look good. And we get another cliffhanger, probably the most, uh, you know, uh, jaw-dropping cliffhanger of the series. And you, you know, you see that, you're definitely going to get it. So this series is firing on all cylinders, so I'm not going to waste any time. Let's get right into it. Godzilla the Half-Century War, number five. Once again, story and art by James Stokoe, color assist by Heather Breckel, editor Bobby Kernow. The End of the World, 2002. Oda's personal journey has taken him to Antarctica as the AMF prepares to deploy their newest Mechagodzilla. But as Oda muses about how for all of his time trying to stop Godzilla, the world has never really understood the beast, there are bigger problems at hand. The space monsters Gigan and King Ghidorah are there, having ravaged half the planet, and now with their sights set on the other half. But that is where the resistance begins. Besides the MG, there is also the Dimension Tide, a gun which generates miniature black holes which will be used against the space monster. There is no time for more thoughtfulness though, as Oda feels a familiar rumbling and Godzilla arrives. Sneaking aboard the MG, Oda stands side by side with Godzilla once more as they engage the two vicious space monsters. The battle is pitched and fierce, with massive blows struck by both sides as the AMF spools up the Dimension Tide for firing. With Godzilla pinned by King Ghidorah, Oda makes one desperate gamble, crashing the two space monsters together and into the black hole. As Godzilla turns to walk away, Oda blocks him, demanding that the King of Monsters acknowledge him. Godzilla tears out the front hull of the MG, leaving Oda staring right at Godzilla. Oda demands that Godzilla look at him, which G grudgingly does, before both of them are caught in the black hole and vanish. It's been quite the journey, uses Oda. Back at base, an emotional Kurakama holds Oda's Godzilla diary, while out in the ocean, a familiar set of spines rises above the waves. It definitely is the end, and uh, this uh, does not disappoint as a blow-off to the series. The cover shows Godzilla standing up out of the ocean with a aircraft carrier caught on his back as he, uh, the rest of the fleet is buffeted by the waves of him standing up. Just a great image. Nothing. Uh, we do see Gigan and King Ghidorah riding an aircraft carrier, so the image is appropriate, although Godzilla doesn't really interact with it. Page 3, Oda is in really poor shape at this point. Uh, it's obviously taken its uh, toll on him, uh, this whole life that he's had. We see him coughing uncontrollably several times as he uh, walks over and talks with Kentaro about the, the newest Mechagodzilla model. This is the Kiru, uh, with his um, design from uh, Godzilla x Mechagodzilla with the uh, gauntlet on his left wrist and the blue cannons over his shoulders. Oh, Kentaro doesn't look all that great either. He's been doing this a long time as well. So the the long journey, the five decades that Oda has been chasing after Godzilla has consumed his life, and we see at this point that he's towards the end of his life here. Pages four and five, the space monsters. Uh, is there a more popular team-up of space monsters than Gigan and King Ghidorah? I, I don't know. I mean... These guys are always depicted uh, together when you need space monsters, and they just have such great looks. And, you know, and Gigan, Gigan wasn't in, his movies weren't all that great, but 
his design is great and he's super popular and everybody loves King Ghidorah. He put the two of them together, kind of an unstoppable team. And as we see, Gigan is riding atop the aircraft carrier while King Ghidorah is floating above, destroying a battleship with his gravity beam. Page 6, we're introduced to the Dimension Tide, uh, another Millennium reference after the Kiru. And, you know, I said this during the episode where we talked about Godzilla x Megajiras. The Dimensional Tide seems like a good idea, but man, that seems like an awfully dangerous thing to throw out there. You've already got a world filled with giant monsters. You want to make artificial black holes, too? Just seems like asking for trouble. Pages 9 through 15, the biggest battle we've seen so far in this series takes place as um, Godzilla first um, attacks King Ghidorah and Gigan by himself, but is quickly joined by Oda piloting the Mechagodzilla after he sneaks aboard. And um, it's just back and forth. We see Kiru's missiles, uh, which he used to great effect in um, both of his movies in the uh, Millennium Era. Uh, again, looking more like a uh, robot anime than anything else. We see Gigan do a dive bomb attack, hacking into Godzilla's shoulder with his claw. Gigan would do a similar attack with his jet cutter in his film and Godzilla vs. Megalon. Uh, we see King Ghidorah picking up Godzilla with his uh, three mouths and holding him above his head. This is uh, this is similar to what happened in Final Wars with uh, Kaiser King Ghidorah doing that to Godzilla. I love when King Ghidorah lifts people up with his mouth. It just really shows his strength. Because even though those necks are pretty thin, he's really, really strong. And we lose that sometimes, the strength of King Ghidorah. Godzilla then turns one of King Ghidorah's heads to fire it as a weapon towards Gigan which I think was just great, and knocks Gigan out of the sky with the gravity beam. And uh, we also get to see Kiru do one of his flying shoulder blocks. One of my favorite scenes in Godzilla X Mechagodzilla is when Kiru does his uh, jet-powered shoulder block to Godzilla when uh, they engage them in the city. And um, it just really just drives his shoulder right into King Ghidorah here. Really a nice back-and-forth fight. This fight is just amazing. And then on page 15, we uh, panel 2, we get to see Godzilla and Kiru standing side by side as they double-team blast the space monsters. Uh, Godzilla using, of course, his beam, and Kiru using his full arsenal, including his uh, hand-mounted weapons, his shoulder cannons, and his own atomic beam. Just a fantastic blow-off to the, to, the, to the fight here. And the fight's not even done, because as a Dimension Tide fires, you know, um, Godzilla's pinned, and Oda grabs uh, Gigan uh, under the, uh, around the neck and just kind of jetpacks him into, into King Ghidorah, knocking them both into the Dimension Tide. Page 17, panel 3, is a great shot. All the monsters in silhouette uh, with kind of a red sky, and uh, the Dimension Tide black hole is purple with, like, uh, storm clouds in it, and we just see the, the space monsters thrown into the void. Just a fantastic finish there. Uh, page 18 and 19, it's the end of the road, as uh, we now see the space monsters thrown into the black hole, not in a stylized fashion, but in one last great spread full detail here, with uh, the mountains of the uh, of ice behind Godzilla, Kiru in the foreground, and then King Ghidorah and Gigan screaming as they're thrown into this uh, void, and we see them being sucked into absolute nothingness. Uh, pages 20 through 22, this is Oda's last stand as uh, Godzilla turns to leave and Oda says, no, you're not walking away again, not this time. And Kiru jumps in front of him and Oda screams, I will make you notice me. 
So finally, Godzilla just tears out the front hull. As Oda has a coughing fit, he just uh, he screams, "Look at me! Look at me, you damn monster!" And uh, his face is just the rage of uh, 50 years of chasing after this monster all pours out of him in this one panel. And uh, finally, Godzilla looks a little bit down at Oda, and uh, Oda just has to smile and say, "Stubborn to the very end." Typical Godzilla. And then uh, as Godzilla and Kiru also fall into the uh, dimension tide before it collapses. We get a great panel on page 23, which to me looks almost like a symbolic representation of the Japanese flag because it's an all-white background. We get some smoke and rubble along the bottom, but then the dimension tide is a perfect circle in the middle, and it's black on the edges, but it goes very sharply towards red and then white. So looking at it, it looks a lot like the Japanese flag, and I think that may be an intentional send-off from uh, Stoko. And page 25, amidst the smoking ruin of the Dimension Tide and amidst the icy waters, we see Godzilla's spines rise up out of the sea. And you can never keep the King of Monsters down. Nothing will ever stop him. And I, the only thing this, I think, was missing was a little fiend at the end, or the end, or something like that. Because here it just kind of ends on this little note, and I like it a lot. So... The series ends in a spectacular blow-off with a visceral, in-your-face bit of daikaiju combat. You know, the human aspect is not lost either in this issue. Oda's journey through the 50 years is felt by the reader, and by the time here, he's, you know, he's an old man. And he's an old man that's dedicated his life to this, and he will not have his life mean nothing. He will not have Godzilla ignore him anymore. And that the King of Monsters acknowledges him is just a great end to his arc. And where else can you go? So it made, you know, him making uh, his, his ending his life in that way was expected because his life had been, he had fulfilled his purpose at that point. Uh, this is a love letter to the Godzilla series through, you know, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, the Hesai era, the Millennium era. It works on both a basic daikaiju level of this guy's story chasing after Godzilla for 50 years and all the different other monsters that he runs into and Dr. Deverick and the monster attractor and the AMF. But it also really works on a metatextual level and on a very deep emotional level. Reading this series brought me back to every Godzilla movie I had ever watched growing up as a kid, as a, as a preteen, as a teenager, as an adult, and the emotional responses that I gave to those films. And it really taps into those different eras and what they mean for different people. As, as an homage to this series, I can't imagine a better comic book uh, limited series to, to be an homage to the Godzilla series. Just so well thought out. It's clear that Stoko has a real love for this character and for this series. You know, one of the criticisms I leveled at the early IDW series, Kingdom of Monsters, was that it seemed like a lot of people were just kind of going through the motions. You don't get that here. Stoko clearly is a fan and clearly loves his Daikaiju. I consider this series to be a triumph of art from, from James Stoko. He's done some work for IDW before. I'd never seen full issues of his work before, and if he ever does anything else in this genre, I'm definitely picking it up. I'm going to go online and see what else he's done and go track that down. I liked it that much. Um, this is, without a doubt, one of the best series of Godzilla comics ever published, ever by any publisher. I think if you haven't checked this down, you owe it to yourself. IDW is usually very good about collecting their collecting their miniseries. This would be definitely one to pick up. Personally, I would love to see this in a digest form. 
in black and white like a manga. I mean, this would be one Tonkabon volume of manga here, and that'd be just a great read, just a grab and go. But even a full color one would just be fantastic. Totally worth the money. And if you if you can't wait, go to your local comic book shop and see if you can track it down because this is just fantastic. And I'm so glad that IDW gave an opportunity to publish a quirky kind of story like this looking at the history of the series and not just their monthly book. And I applaud them and hope they continue that trend in the future. Well, I have gushed on long enough. It is time to take a quick break. We will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, we're continuing our coverage of the Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors series. Today we have Shogun Warriors number 3, cover dated April 1979 with a cover price of 35 cents. Our cover depicts Combatra very deftly grabbing a train with one hand while blasting a rock monster with his rocket fist off the other hand while the monster claims, You're doomed, Combatra. One Shogun alone cannot defeat Rock Core. Shogun Warriors number three, the writer was Doug Mensch, artist Herb Trimpey, inker Dan Green, letterer Jim Novak, colorist Andy Yankus, editor Alan Milgram, and editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. The title, Elements of Destruction. With rock core split into the elements of Earth, fire, and water, the Shogun Warriors faced the biggest challenge of their young careers. The rock cores opened the attack, spewing fire, hurling rocks, and surging water at their robotic enemies. Ilongo's Savage uses Dangard Ace's eye lasers to heat the water elemental into steam, but the beast merely condenses and reforms. In Raideen, Richard Carson uses a Screamer Hawk missile to blast apart the fire elemental, but once more, the monster reconstitutes itself. And as Genji uses Kumbatra's strong armor to resist the earth elemental, deflected boulders strike at the trestle bridge with the Shogun saved last issue, causing the train to start teetering. As the terrified passengers evacuate, a fuel car topples and falls, leaving Genji with no choice but to launch Kombatra on top of it to muffle the massive explosion. The blast knocks her out cold, leaving her and her Shogun prone, but not for long as Genji regains consciousness just in time to get Kombatra on his feet and launch his rocket fist at the Earth Elemental. Down in the haunt of evil, Lord Malarkon looks on, impressed with the power of science which is wielded by the Shogun warriors. But his second, Lieutenant Magar, is disgusted, claiming that only through sorcery can the forces of evil conquer the followers of the light. Maurakhan dismisses Magar and leaves to consult the techno-mages on their next creation, leaving Magar to stew in his own juices and brood about overthrowing Maurakhan. Back at the battle, the water elemental spins itself into a water spout, and then a massive storm cloud, discharging blasts of lightning bolts at the shoguns. Savage orders a team to all strike at the cloud at once, and they oblige him, battering the cloud with all of their firepower. The cloud bursts, pouring down rain, enough to extinguish the fire elemental at the same time. The earth elemental, the last monster standing, begins to absorb a mountain into its mass, and forcing an avalanche down at the shoguns. Carson reacts quickly, telling the team to lock into their power triangle formation and blast the mountain to dust. 
With Rock Corps finally defeated, the Shoguns celebrate their success and the start of their new career. But at the labs of Malarkand's techno-mages, Lord of Evil was presented with his newest weapon in the war, the hideous Mech Monster. So the first story arc comes to an end, with Rock Corps finally being defeated after going through not one, not two, but three forms, including the uh, his original monstrous form, then the rock elemental form, and now his triple elemental form. So it's the team's defeated their first threat and has gelled and has really come together nicely. So we start to see some subplots being introduced that will continue to plague the team down the road. Page number one is a splash page. It's kind of an interesting angle. We're looking through the legs of Rydeen at the fire elemental. We can't really, except for the fire elemental, you don't really see anyone all that clearly because we're looking at the backs of the shoguns and they are screening the earth elemental and the water elemental. So we really see, you know, kind of the back thighs and legs of Rydeen. We see the back of Combatra and the back of Dangard Ace. And then we see a little bit of two of the elementals and most of the fire elemental. Kind of an odd way to start the issue. You know, it does again give a sense of scale, which is something we've seen over and over in this series, giving a sense of scale for the, the Shoguns and the monsters they fight, which are substantially larger than the typical Marvel Comics characters. Page 3, panel 1, all-out combat is met. We get a great shot here of the elementals attacking with all their powers, essentially, and then the Shoguns resisting and then turning back the fight. The panel of Dengard Ace using his eye lasers is really nice, coming out of both eyes and emerging into one, almost kind of like Cyclops is the way it's colored with the red and pink and white. And eye lasers are always cool. I think that's a neat effect. It doesn't mount to much. The water elemental simply reforms himself, but neat attack that we hadn't seen from Dan Gardais previously. On page 6, Rydeen uses his Screamerhawk missile, which we've seen a few times out of Rydeen in this series, and that was one of Rydeen's attacks from the original uh, manga and anime as well, so that makes sense. Uh, again, not much of an impact on the uh, elemental, but a good scene nonetheless. There's an interesting part here on page 6 where the fire elemental actually envelops Rydeen in a ball of fire. And uh, Carson's punny line is, I've heard of great balls of fire, but a talking one is just plain outrageous. Gotta love Carson's forced attempt at comedy that really doesn't work. So, Page 10, panel 5, we see the train cars falling off of the trestle bridge. And for the life of me, the only thing this this scene reminded me of was the very end of the movie The Cassandra Crossing. Now I like disaster movies, probably the only reason I've ever seen The Cassandra Crossing, and the climax of the film is this uh, train hurtling across this very rickety bridge and the bridge collapsing, and all these train cars just smashing down, piling one on top of the other. That's exactly what this panel looks like. That may be a strange and obscure reference, but this is kind of a strange and obscure podcast, so I'm willing to go with that. Page 11, panel 2, as Combatra throws himself on top of the fuel car to muffle the explosion, we get a great bit of sound effects automatopoeia. It's Kroomph! K-R-O-O-O-O-O-M-P-H. That is really creative right there. I like that. Kroomph! And then uh, the next panel, as uh, Genji is thrown from her uh, cockpit seat, she cracks her head and it's Wak! And uh, if she was Chinese, that might be offensive, but she's Japanese, so it's okay. Panel 5, same page. We get a great shot. This is a thin panel, maybe about a quarter height of the page, but it goes the entire width. And it shows all of the different combats going on in this fight. We see Rydeen using his shield to block the fire elemental's flame blast. 
The water elemental has turned into a tidal wave and is attempting to submerge Dangardes, and the prone Combatra is being stalked by the earth elemental. Again, nice sense of scale. Most Marvel comics didn't deal with gigantic heroes or monsters, so good to see it and being addressed directly. Page 15, panels 4 and 5, as Combatra gets back on his feet, we get the Rocket Punch, a classic element of all Super Robot anime, dating all the way back to Mazinger Z, of course. That's a shout-out to Lomax right there. And it's used to great effect here, because what's interesting is not just fire, it doesn't just fire in a straight direction. Combatra fires it, and then it takes a couple of turns, first shattering through the uh, left arm of the Earth Elemental, and then flying off past his head, obviously searching for another target. Another good tie-in here, because, of course, the, most of the Shogun Warriors toys had firing fists on them, so this made sense, and this was uh, put to good use here. I really like the way they used the, the rocket punch in this series. Page 16, panel 2. Uh, Lieutenant Magar is introduced, and Magar will continue to be a thorn in the side of the Shogun Warriors going forward. He's got a kind of an interesting look. He's wearing a kind of a one-piece jumpsuit with uh, a belt and a sash and stripes up his sleeves. He looks like something that a member of the Serpent Society might wear on Casual Friday. But he's got kind of an odd face because he's completely bald and he has no eyebrows. And for the life of me, he looks like the professional wrestler Kane. If you ever watch uh, WWE, Monday Night Raw, you know, Kane will probably show up at some point, and he looks a lot like Magar. I, could, I would cast Kane as Magar in, you know, the theoretical Shogun Warriors movie that uses the Marvel Comics continuity. Go figure on that. Still good uh, to see some dissension amongst the ranks of evil as well. Magar is a devoted follower of sorcery, and so this obviously will put him into conflict with Malakon, who seems to favor a mix of sorcery and science. Again, kind of interesting to see this competition between sorcery and science, even as far back as the late 70s, as this is a theme that's still visited today, both in uh, comics as well as other science fiction media. Page 17, panel 4, as Magar follows Malakon to the Technomage's lab, we get a great half-page panel here showing this hellish landscape of the haunt of evil. It's a cavern with a you know, rock bridge weaving through it over pits of magma with stalactites and stalagmites and almost an artificial sky of all reds and oranges. Just really nice work by Herb Trimpey here just to set the stage for this underground fortress that the... Um, the villains of the piece like to hang out in. Page 22, panel 1, after Savage gives the order to attack the cloud with everything they've got, we get a really nice shot here of the Shoguns going all out. Dangard Ace is firing his rocket fist, Combatra firing his finger missiles, and riding once again using a Screamer Hawk missile. And then the next panel shows all of them impacting with various sound effects. Boom, choom, ba-boom, boom, 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 boom. Really nice, and I said this earlier in the show when I was talking about that I always like scenes with the Mechagodzilla would unload his entire arsenal. This just looks even cooler because it's three super robots and they're all doing their arsenal at once. Page 23, panel 3, Carson calls for them to lock into the power triangle. Now this might have been something that came up during their training courses, but we were not privy to. Uh, the three of them all grab hands and hold their... Uh, hold their hands above their heads as if they're, I don't know, trying to signal for a three-point or a touchdown, something like that. But whatever they do, it allows their power to all be combined, and they completely demolish this mountain. Uh, we get a great, again, sound effect of Krakoom, and a very simple caption box from Doug Mensch of It Is Done, which I thought was very subtle and very final. I really like that little bit. 
page 26, panel 4, after the battle is done, the three pilots disembark from their shoguns, and we get a great shot again showing the scale difference, as in the foreground we have uh, Savage, uh, Genji, and Carson, and behind them we get uh, Kambatra, Raidine, and a little bit of Dangardace. Dangardace is mostly off-panel. But again, we get to see the size difference as they barely come past the feet of Raidine. This is something I've really enjoyed in this series, is seeing the different scale of the uh, different characters. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I sound like a broken record when I say this, but that's been a lot of fun for me because, again, there's not many Marvel comics going on even now that deal with gigantic characters like this. You know, usually things are all just conveniently human-sized. So to deal with giant robots and to really show that scale is nice. And again, I also like that they're wearing their uh, their uniforms. And interestingly, their helmets have letters on them. In the next panel, we can't see Carson's because he's too close, but we see that Genji's helmet has a C on it for Combadra, and Savage's helmet has a D for Dangard A. So one can only presume that Carson's helmet has a big R on it, which makes it all the cooler. Finally, uh, page 30, the final page of the comic, we get to see the mech monster, which for the life of me looks like a crazy dog insect robot thing with two machine guns mounted on its shoulder pads. And it's, of course, in the always intimidating colors of purple and yellow. Um, I don't know what the heck's up with this thing. It, it looks it looks so goofy in this picture that I, I really hope it's a more of a threat to the Shoguns in the actual issue that it debuts in. It's got, I said, like a dog face, two horns coming out of the side, wings kind of like a moth, two machine guns, as I said, in the shoulders, and then eight legs that end with segmented toes. Our next issue box says, The final phase of Shogun training, character revelations, and a shocking plot twist involving the gargantuan metal monster. Overall, I like this issue. I thought it did a good job mixing the combat between the Shoguns and the elements, and then showing us more about the forces of evil, and that they're not all just one note, that there's going to be something going on behind the scenes with them as well. We do get a little bit of the followers of light in this. I kind of skimmed over it because they're, they mostly just look on and then celebrate when the Shoguns win. But as a as a blow off to the first storyline, this I thought was really well done. Like the the action is really strong. You know, it got that really solid Bronze Age Marvel pacing, and the art by Herb Trimpey just looks good throughout. I mean, I'm really starting to to warm to Trimpey drawing these giant robots. It's just it's so odd to see such a quintessentially superhero artist like Herb Trimpey handling giant mecha, but he does it so well. And I said this before, I think this might have been something that wouldn't be, I wouldn't have thought this would be Herb Trimpey doing something like this, but he looks so good. You know, who am I to argue with that? Another interesting note, uh, there's no letters column this time out, book's still too new for that, but they have a Mighty Marvel bonus, which is the Shogun Warriors outline slash glossary. And this is very neat, it's almost like a miniature one-page series Bible that details all of the uh, elements of the series. We got the breakdown of the followers of the light, the uh, the robe, the shoguns, their their pilots, what their weapons are, what the different abilities of the robots are, then the followers of darkness, and we get to learn about Maurikan and uh, Rockcore, the mech monster. They're all in here. It's very neat. And uh, again, for something that you know you can't have a letters page yet, I thought that was a very nice bonus. I do have to uh, give Al Milgram credit for running that in this issue. So overall, good story. I'm enjoying this. We're uh, we're going fast and furious now. We're headlong into it. So we'll have issue number four next time. But it is time for us to take a break. So come on back on Earth Destruction Directive. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection. 
section so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneofthegays.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Yeah. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. All right, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it's time for my favorite part of the show, listener feedback, as we get a chance to read your emails to the show. And if you want to be a part of the show, the email address is in the outro, so be sure to keep those cards and letters coming. Our first email is from Oswald Cobblepot. No, it's actually from Jack Dower, who, if you listen to the Fire and Water podcast, you know, is a uh, rather intense fan of the Penguin, and I say more power to you, great character. Jack writes, Detective Giaconetti, thank you for your excellent coverage of the Marvel Shogun Warriors series. I could never find any issues past 12. That can't be the ending, right? Uh, you're right, actually, it ends with number 20, so yeah, there's about a year and a, or about half a year that you didn't see there, so... Uh, Jack continues, My first kaiju comic was Marvel Godzilla number 20. Wow. My favorite superhero, The Thing, versus my favorite monster, Godzilla, was almost too much for my child's brain. If they could have found a way to work in the brigand, <laughs> work in the brigand of Bumbershoots and Abbott and Costello, it would have been the world's most perfect comic book experience. As it was, I was hooked for life. You know something, Jack? I would pay cash money on the table read a comic book that had the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, the king of monsters Godzilla, um, that foul-feathered fiend, the penguin, and Abbott and Costello all in one comic. That would be just beyond crazy. I would love that. That'd be classic. Here's my question. If I was to going, if I was going to try to get the Shogun Warrior cartoon you talked about, what is the best way to do it? Keep stomping and stay safe out there, Jack Dower. Um... And he's, he's got a PS, which I'll get to in a minute here. Now, the thing, Jack, is that there never was a specific Shogun Warriors cartoon. Uh, there was the toy line, and there was the comic. Now, a lot of people associate the Force 5 series with the Shogun Warriors. This was very, uh, very close, well, very closely tied to it in a lot of people's minds. Force 5 was a series of five super robot animes brought over by Jim Terry in, I want to say, 1981? Something like that. Uh, that they um, you know, localized, and uh, what they would do is they would air one series each day of the week. So Monday got one show, Tuesday got another show, and so on and so forth. Um, now, 
let's see, they were, uh, what were the shows? Dengard Ace, who was one of the uh, Shogun Warriors, Guy King, Grandizer, uh, Getter Robo G, which got renamed as Starvengers, and Starzinger, which was renamed as Space Cateers. Uh, 26 episodes of the series were, were uh, of each series, were made up for Force 5. And Jim Terry was trying to get these uh, brought, released on DVD. And as of last year, there was a, uh, an effort to get this done. Uh, I don't know that everything ever came of it. If you go to jimterryproductionservices.com, you can probably get some more information. I know well, Mr. Lomax was uh, the one who provided me with this link. and uh, But that was the, you know, the closest thing we got to a Shogun Warriors cartoon. I do know that the uh, Guy King series, uh, a couple of those episodes were edited together into movies, and that is being released on DVD. I think it's being called the Guy King Movie Collection, which you probably can get on Amazon. So just use the Two True Freaks link at twotruefreaks.com. Go to Amazon and get the uh, Guy King uh, Movie Collection. Guy King wasn't in the comic, but he was a Shogun Warriors toy, so that sort of counts. Uh, now, Jack has a PS. PS, what is your favorite wacky monster mashup? Now, I'm going to look at this uh, question literally. My favorite wacky monster movie. That's a tough one, because there's so many ones from the Showa era that are just so just a lot of fun, even though they don't necessarily make a lot of sense. Uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan is, is odd, because that's a movie I didn't see until I was a little bit older, so I don't have a lot of the... Um, youthful enthusiasm that a lot of fans do for that one because I didn't see it as a youth uh, compared to say Gator the Three-Headed Monster which I first saw when I was four years old and love 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 to this day that a lot of people are like well it's not as good as Monster Zero so we're not going to talk about it my favorite one, like I said, it vacillates. Uh, I, I really like, like I said, um, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. I really like Monster Zero. You know, I'm a sucker for uh, for those, what I call the Golden Age movies. So, depending on what day of the week you ask me, it's going to probably be one of those two. Today, it's going to be Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. is my favorite one. And that certainly has its wacky moments. Mal Ness alone brings some great, great uh, bits of, of total 60s uh, hipster doofusism uh, to that movie. Totally unintentional, because at the time it was completely straight. But now you look at it, and, and Malness is awesome. If, if you go back and listen to uh, episode 2 of our Destruction Directive, and, and as an aside, I'm going to be uploading the classic episodes onto twotruefreaks.com in the coming weeks and months. Listen to episode 2 of our Destruction Directive, and you'll hear all about gear the three-headed monster. Jack, thank you very much for writing. Uh, always great to hear from you. Always good to hear from a fellow Penguin fan. So uh, keep coming thanks a lot man our next email is from christopher mounts and is entitled jacanetti where the hell were you you were supposed to be staking out the docks what you were too busy playing game boy damn it jacanetti you let demonzo smuggle those daikaiju right into the country there's giant footprints on the golf courses in kiowa island i'm more a folly beach kind of guy but come on the mayor tore me a new one get it together man did you even look at that DVD copy of Godzilla vs. Biolanti from Miramax that I left on your desk? God help us. Lieutenant Christopher Mounts, Charleston, PD. Oh yeah, golf courses don't got rights, Lieutenant. <laughs> I don't know how I want to keep this dirty hairy routine going, but uh, <laughs> the South Carolina jokes in this email are awesome, and if you're not from South Carolina, some of these are going to go right over your head. And to answer your question, uh, Lieutenant, I did in fact have 
In fact, I own the uh, copy of Godzilla vs. Biollante on DVD, and you should too, because you can find it for about five bucks at any retailer. Uh, so that goes out to everybody. Go out and buy the DVD of Godzilla vs. Biollante. You will not be disappointed. Uh, I think it was episode nine of Earth Destruction Directive. We covered Godzilla vs. Biollante, and it's a classic, just a modern classic. For a long time, Godzilla vs. Biollante was to me the knee plus ultra of Daikaiju cinema because at the time that was the newest Godzilla movie you could find in the US. HBO Video released it on VHS uh, in like 90, oh, 92 or so. And so it was on HBO a lot. And at this time, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs. Mothra, those were not available in the US. You had to buy bootlegs. And that's what I eventually had to do for those was buy VHS bootlegs from dealers. Uh, you know, back in the day when, uh, you know, tape trading was a, was a thing. This was an actual happening. Uh, but, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I like Folly Beach. I've been there. Isle of Palms is real nice. I will say that. I've been there one time. Um, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm upstate. I'm not so much down the coast, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with it. Thank you so much for writing in, uh, Lieutenant. That was... <laughs> your emails are always a hoot. I love them just to get yelled at. And then i got to try and think of uh, a Clint Eastwood waiter. See, I'm more of a... I'm more like Charles Bronson. I just don't talk sometimes. I know that's hard to believe listening to this show, that I just don't talk but it does actually happen so amazing thank you very much for emails guys everybody out there if you enjoyed the show if you didn't enjoy the show please send an email i love getting email i've said it before and lord knows i'll say it again podcasting is a complete labor of love and a lot of it uh you know comes down to hearing feedback from you guys that you're enjoying what we're doing so thank you very much guys there'll be a little something extra in your checks this week now, what are we going to be covering next time? As I said at the top of the show, uh, there's a lot of Daikaiju stuff happening this week, including the release of Pacific Rim. So there's probably going to be a special Pacific Rim episode somewhere uh, after the release of Pacific Rim. I've got a couple of things planned. I'm going to see what I can pull together. So, But as far as the next regular episode, and I do air quotes up to the microphone on the word regular, of Earth Destruction Directive, I'm going to be bringing back again. Uh, Mr. Bill Lomax is going to be joining us again, and we're going to be talking about episodes 3 and 4 of the original Ultraman. This, of course, following up on our first Ultraman episode, where we talked about episodes 1 and 2. So, logical conclusion there. Uh, So, if you want to watch these, you can go to Hulu.com. You can watch uh, Ultraman, the entire series, for free. Great deal. Can't beat that, as far as I'm concerned. And um, episode 3 deals with the monster Ragon, and episode 4 with the monster Greenmons, to old school ultra monsters for you so be sure to come on back we're also going to have of course shogun warriors number four and uh probably a few more surprises in there too so please come on back we'll see you next time on earth destruction directive and until then keep them stomping Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work 
celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. It's more frightening than I ever thought possible.